So yeah, we've got a flurry interval, and what's the, what's the first one called? Uh, McFlurry. There's <laughs> <laughs> Marwin Scale, Marwin Flurry Imzahoe, and Shanley. Do we need a crib sheet? Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talk Science Fiction, a podcast where social scientists, researchers, theorists, and philosophers discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the basement of the International Politics Department at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. If you'd like to see or hear more from us, check out the website at socialsciencetalks.wordpress.com, subscribe on iTunes, or tweet at social underscore sci-fi. We hope you enjoy the programme. In Ian M. Banks' 1988 novel The Player of Games, master game player Jernau Gergay discusses the utility of different types of games in his society. He says... All reality is a game. Physics, at its most fundamental, the very fabric of our universe, results directly from the interaction of certain fairly simple rules. And chance, the same description may be applied to the best, most elegant, and both intellectually and aesthetically satisfying games. By being unknowable, by resulting from events which, at the subatomic level, cannot be fully predicted, the future remains makeable and retains the possibility of change, the hope of coming to prevail, victory, to use an unfashionable word. In this, the future is a game. Time is one of the rules. Generally, all the best mechanistic games, those which can be played in any sense perfectly, such as chess, can be traced to civilizations lacking a realistic view of the universe, let alone the reality. They are also, I might add, invariably pre-machine sentient societies. Banks' novel explores the various sociological and metaphysical roles that games and game playing can take, as well as exploring two societies the arguably utopian culture, and the imperialist Azadian empire. I'm Matthew Campbell. I'm a gunboat diplomat. Joining me this month... I'm Alex Hoseason. Of course I still love you. John Wood. So much for subtlety. Yvonne Rinkard. I always read the instructions. Okay, so... Um, John suggested this novel, actually. Uh, so I think this is the first time you've picked a book for us, isn't it? I mean, it's only the second time I've been here, but I mean, as much as anything, I was really interested to see what your two devious minds would have to say about this, considering, well, two out of, well, three out of four of us are, well, pretty obsessive gamers, and it's a book about what we do all the time when we're not talking about politics. I wouldn't exclude Yvonne from that. She uses games for something useful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to point out that the, the three of us do it as a hobby, in that sense, for close to Gurge, but Yvonne actually teaches using games. So. <laughs> it takes all the fun out of it. No, in fact, it puts it in. Well, the teaching, not necessarily. Okay, so I guess the obvious thing to start for is that Jernau, when he discusses games or when he watches television programmes about sentient glaciers, understands games as a metaphor, that they're not this mathematical system, we're playing through them in order to learn something about ourselves or about our society. Well, I think, I think actually for him, there's, there's two things going on. One is, one is that, clearly, right? And, and, and that is the main kind of thematic thing of the novel. The other thing that he appreciates is the complexity. He appreciates them as systems, and so, you know, he's clearly involved in some kind of academic endeavour whereby he writes commentaries and, and, and draws out these cultural things. But there, there's points in the novel in which he's also just amazed at the system. And, and, and this is paralleled by the, the ship who he, he consults, uh, consults with while he's playing the kind of major game of the, of, of the book. Um, 
which also kind of just appreciates its kind of mechanistic quantities. And I, I, I think that's something that I at least would associate quite strongly with. I like those setups because it allows you to play in your head, um, which brings, brings something into it, as, as opposed to a kind of purely procedural, you follow these steps kind of way of organising things. I've got nowhere to go from there. But I think maybe to push this further than that, there's almost, there's certainly like an aesthetic value to playing games for him. Yeah. But I think uh, as the book progresses and he hmm, somehow loses control of his game, right? Um, I think there's, there's almost, there's almost a certain kind of eroticism to that, right? That, so it's, it's, I think he's appreciating, appreciating them in what he would probably call an animalistic way increasingly the, the further it goes, right? I think that's certainly true. I mean, even from the start, his ability to beat Ye at... Ye is the name of a character rather than an expression. His ability to beat Ye at games is juxtaposed with the fact that she will not sleep with him. As that this is his personal success, but she also represents his personal failure. And so I think that's, that's in the book very early on, and it certainly comes to the fore in his personality. Well, I think it's certainly the case in, in, in a very early game that he plays uh, in the novel, he's attempting to go for... I mean, the, the games that he plays in general aren't described in depth, but he's attempting to go for some kind of great achievement, some great victory called a full web, which no one's ever done before. And while you can see the achievement he would get out of that is, is, is kind of primarily aesthetic in some way, you know, he's achieved this great, effectively artistic work. He's manipulated this system in such a way as to achieve a full web. His main problem and his main disenchantment with life in the kind of hegemonic society called the culture is that there's no risk. Hmm. Now that erotic angle or that kind of animalistic desire comes out when he's playing games later on, not necessarily because he's losing, because in many cases he's not actually at much risk at all. Hmm. Um, and the novel goes to great lengths to explain that actually, okay, if he lost his legs or whatever, he could just regrow them. But when he associates playing the game with risk to something, so having seen the kind of barbarity of the empire, he then has something to play for, and him losing means something because of that. Well, interestingly, when he... So when the drone offers to help him cheat to achieve the full web, it's compared directly to an instance short, shortly before where someone thought he was cheating when he wasn't, and how thrilling that was. And the metaphor Banks directly uses is an orgasm. And this is clearly what does it for him as a character, which is actually kind of concerning when you start to see his apparent moral superiority to the more primitive, we'll say, Empire of Azad, where he travels to. Hmm. I, was, I was quite fascinated by this um, idea that deterministic games were barbaric I mean as someone that, as someone that plays quite a lot of board games um, one, of, one of the kind of upward trends or, or kind of the dominant force in, in, a, in a lot of board gaming at the moment is precisely these kind of deterministic games because after the second world war there was a move away from war gaming particularly in Europe and so the kind of face of the family friendly game rather than these kind of indeterministic dice rolling type games was a kind of effectively a maths puzzle. I mean, you could abstract it to the point where it is a maths puzzle. 
And so it's quite a nice reversal of that kind of cultural trend, if you like, in this novel. I mean, he's not responding directly to it, but it was it was quite interesting to see that parallel where he was able to say, well, actually, it's not that the only uncertainty around you is the people you're playing with, which is the case in these so-called Euro games, but that actually the fundamental level of existence itself is, is is quite an uncertain it's quite an uncertain thing I mean you used to play a lot of chess Matt so I mean how, yeah. how, how did you did that have you up in arms well I, I, I curiously <laughs> noted that so he suggests there's a limit to the value of deterministic games if we examine our own human culture we see that the two games which get most commonly held up as pinnacles of civilization are chess and go both of which are fundamentally deterministic and indeed have taken extensive steps to mitigate the advantage governed by being the player who goes first. Um, so really the only, the only randomness in chess and go is the luck of whether you start in a better position than your opponent, which you could argue actually reflects our culture and our world pretty well. But when it comes to the machine intelligences thing, yes, computers beat us at chess, they're getting better at go, but has this damaged chess as an intellectual exercise? I'm not sure. Well, I think the interesting thing in the context of this novel is that, I mean, for a start, I would say that the reason Go hasn't been solved yet is because it's possibility-based. The number of possible outcomes is so much higher than chess, right? So, I mean, it's not anything about the nature of the game that has made it unsolvable so much as just not having enough computing power. So, I mean, in theory, it is some point in the future solvable. Um, I think... The one of the interesting points this raises, though, is in the novel, it's implied quite heavily that the ships and the mines, and generally anything with some level of machine intellect, machine intellect, is more than capable of effectively solving these games. Yeah, it's certainly um, limiting factor, which is the ship that carries Gergay around, is better at the game than he is. It's in Gergay decides that there's one point in the game where he's won a game of hazard and he says it's over and the machine comes back to him a few hours later and says well actually um, it's still possible for it to be a draw but it's beyond any human so yeah I mean it is interesting to think of it in that way because I mean the, the other thing I mean you know as the plot of the novel make, makes clear you know Gergay's not entirely free right I mean he's kind of his interactions and stuff are somewhat predestined by kind of the plottings of the contact section of the culture, which is the area of the of the organisation of the culture which is responsible for contact with apostrophe alien uh, races. Um, this is where we get the novel's central, unless you want to... Oh yeah, I just wanted to jump in on like the... the idea of determinism and how closely in a solvable game you can approach reaching that as well I mean if you're a machine intelligence you're in this context pretty close to having sort of an infinite capacity but but I mean it's like the absolute upper limit is is, is a real proof that you are in fact the best if you have a deterministic game and yet you still beat your opponent because of your, you know, provable higher intellectual capacity as a weak and squishy thing. I mean, you can see examples of it not just in chess, but I mean, like, in games which are theoretically deterministic, but 
skill-based like Dark Souls, it is deterministic in each boss has and each enemy has a sequence of moves which it varies through, but there is an exact counter to each one, so it's your reaction times combined with recognition and skill level of practicing that as to how good you are at the game in competition gives you compared to an awful lot of games in which um, sort of haven't had the um, the popularity or impact of Dark Souls given it it's uh, I think longevity difference there is that the games Govier plays and what we consider games in this sense don't account for things like reaction times. I mean, I guess chess takes place on a clock, so maybe it does a bit, but there's not a physical skill to it. Well, I mean, to coin a term, I think the distinction actually is where we might put, this is going to sound horribly pretentious, but where we might put the locus of uncertainty, right? You heard it here first, folks. Um, <laughs> I just made a word. Um, but the, the fundamental thing is that in chess, there is still uncertainty. The game itself is deterministic, but the uncertainty is the play itself. Because it's not been solved. Now, so actually, solving chess would involve solving the other person as well. Well, I mean... As an incumbent part of that problem. So drafts is solved. Yeah. There's a, there, there, you, you could, there's a computer program that does it, or you could print out what to do in the event of any given move in the game of drafts. Then it doesn't matter what the person on the other side of the board does, the person who goes first will win. Chess is deterministic, but we haven't yet solved it. Hmm. Partly because, well, by the time white takes a move and black takes a move, there's already 200 possible positions on the board. So solving it's a order of magnitude different, but it's still deterministic in that sense. Yeah, the, ge- the game itself is, but the act of playing it isn't in the sense that you don't know what move they've made until they've made. I mean, I, I think the point is solving the game is different from actually playing the game. Um, in the sense that a lot of card games or or uh, kind of contemporary card games which have a kind of betrayal mechanic or withdrawal of information, or uh, sorry, withholding of information, they're reliant on the fact that, okay, the, the game rules in a situation of you know, certain forms of kind of the availability of information and so on make the game fairly simple, but they are reliant on involving people in deception and everything else as a way of making it less um, less obvious, more fun to play, ultimately. So to, to spin that idea out a bit, the, the central arc of the novel involves the Empire of Azad, where they play a game called Azad, which is their word for machine, this horribly complicated combination of dice, magic gathering, and chess, it seems like. Um, and Yvonne, you were talking about how that game reflects very deeply the social values of the society, because they use the game to determine rank in the church or the military, or indeed who becomes emperor. Yeah, it does. It, I mean, it does that, right? In, in, in that they use it in order to then determine social positions of the players on I think, fairly regular basis. Um, and, and that's exactly what I think Gerge kind of then, uh, in, in what he gets stuck in, right? This is how he, how, in, how he enters that society, how he gets involved in it. But I think also there's a conversation that he's having with a woman who 
And I think he's surprised by the fact that there is women playing this game at all because this society, I think we should probably say, has three genders. Um, there's male, female, and, and apex. Apex. And the apex is traditionally the game players. And he's surprised by the information that, that females or males would even play that that game. And then she's she's explaining that well, yes, she is this she she is playing this game, but she's not allowed to attend. I think this the school where they learn to play this game in the first place. Um, so she already has a disadvantage. And then I think it's I think it's probably interesting to to remember to point out that he doesn't remember her name. Her name, I, I don't remember her name, but she's called Daughter of Someone. That's her last name. Yeah. And then I think uh, way later in the book, he's trying to figure out what happened to this woman. And all he can find out is that no woman made it beyond the first round. And I think that's really interesting because it's playing exactly on, on these kind of social structures that both determine how the game is played, but also the game then goes back and, and continues to... It kind of recursively it's a feeds circle, back yeah. into... She comments that the presence of a woman on your 10-player game board is so socially shameful that all the other apices will just gang up on her to make sure she's the first player out. Therefore, the social shame creates the result of the game, which is based on where the society allegedly gets its own rules. We're given no origin for where this game comes from. Well, it's quite circular, right? I mean... It's made very clear once Gurge gets past the kind of 10-player version of the game that he has to put forward in advance his philosophy or his wages of some kind of normative content, right? So, you know, he has to effectively define the ideology with which he is then going to play the game. And, of course, if the apices are playing the game with what is heavily implied to be the ideology of the society from which they are including them, yeah. mm. taking account of their own social position, then of course women are going to get knocked out first time because there's not gonna, they're not going to have room in that doctrine for other female players of the game. So right from the beginning we have this really interesting interplay and kind of circular logic between the game and the society kind of recursively justifying each other. Well, I mean, Gerge comments that as an anarchist, he's always been assuming that when he plays a Zad, no piece is more important than any other. I mean, that's like us imagining, well, in the backgammon, a piece can be better placed than another, but it's not inherently more valuable than another piece on the board. I think the clearest example is when he plays the judge, and Banks writes that the judge plays passively initially, weighs up what's presented in front of him, and then takes very clear black or white decisions. The metaphor there is fairly obvious. Yeah, and that follows all the way through. I mean, you know, the climax of the novel where he's playing the emperor, you know, the thing that Gurge is missing as he's getting hammered at the beginning of the game is that the emperor is playing... As the empire. As the empire, and more specifically, as the emperor of an empire. So he's playing in a very kind of pointed and ordered fashion... Um, you know, which whereas Gurge is playing as the culture, which, while it's relatively little explained in the novel itself, we know from other novels that their design principles are basically redundancy over design, and 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 so on. So you know, he's constantly got these fallback positions and and everything else. So it's it in understanding that from a kind of higher point of abstraction that he only you know he only just manages to kind of figure out what's going on because he sees the mirror of himself in the way that he plays. 
And to me, that's one of the slight flaws in the novel, in that it's both implied that one of the reasons Gergay keeps winning is that he doesn't import social biases into the game, and that he just plays the game as its rules present itself. Whereas all the Azadian players do, because they can't help but think of the clergy as important, or their officers as important, as compared to, say, the landscape. And then towards the end of the novel, we discover that, no, the reason Gergay's winning is because he's playing as the culture. And I don't necessarily think the culture is genuinely utopian. So I potentially see that as a bit of a tension, right? That he's allegedly both completely without bias, but plays as a culture. But he's without bias in terms of the game he's playing. Yeah, I mean, he's he's relatively speaking without bias because he's able to view the game as something that has no bearing on his social standing whatsoever, right? So, I mean, his appreciation of the rules comes from that. But that, I mean, he still has to play in a particular way. If he played as another, you know, if he was from another empire, I mean, the, the actual moves he would make in the process of actually playing the game would still probably take on those attributes. Yeah? Although... There's obviously this interesting tension in the book because as he starts to appreciate the game and understand it, I mean, it, 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 the game is described to be one of the most complex ever created, basically. Um, as he gains a greater appreciation of it, he, of course, becomes more Azadian. He kind of, in the terrible phrase, goes native, as it were. You know, he learns the language. Um, you know, he gains an appreciation of what the Empire considered to be the finer things in life, um, and so on. And this is commented on by several characters who suggest that actually Gergay is becoming more aggressive and everything else because he hasn't spent his time learning the culture language, which is a 12,000-year-old language which was designed to be non-hierarchical and non-judgmental, and so on and so on. And of course, this culminates right at the end of the novel when the Emperor gets shot. The drone effectively drops what Banks calls a field is effectively a force field, which can be, in this context, any colour that it likes. But as the, as the Emperor gets shot, the drone turns it into a mirror, and Gergé is looking at himself rather than at the Emperor. And of course he sees himself in exactly the, um, exactly the context which he's kind of set himself against at that point. And then he asks the drone, the shot that killed the Emperor, was it one the Emperor fired? Did it bounce off the shield or did you shoot him? Which is Gergé's way of asking... Did the Empire destroy itself, or was I responsible for it? And the drone refuses to answer. I'm, I'm still stuck with this kind of whether he's biased or not, but I think that there might just be... Because yes, of course he's biased, because he's playing as the culture. Yeah. But I don't think whether the culture... I think playing as the culture is still a new thing in terms of playing a game in a Zad. But you could argue that the the lack of risk and lack of consequences which Gorge faces for playing the game is representative of the culture's lack of real consequences for action. So it's could be that his bias is simultaneously that he's playing the game based on rules rather than preconceptions, but also that is exactly representative of the lack of rules and, well, not lack of rules, but lack of real meaning to existence 
in the culture, mm. lack of consequences. And, and the, the Emperor of Azad rightly chastises him for this. Gurgay believes they're playing a beautiful game. He compares it to a dance, and they're both playing so perfectly. And the Emperor chastises him for quite rightly pointing out that how on earth could you think this is just a game? You know it means more to the Empire. Well, it means more mm. to the Empire because at that point, I mean, there's a further dimension to this, which is effectively the game is the culture's invasion. Mm. Yeah. of the Azadian Empire, and, and Gurge doesn't know that at the time, of course, and the Emperor does. Um, I mean, you know, we, 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 we've slipped slightly, I think, in saying that is playing as the culture. Gurge doesn't know this. He's playing for the culture. Well, he's playing for himself, and then he doesn't realise, when he looks at the board at the end, or towards the end, and he realises that he's playing the game in a way that someone from cult, the culture would play the game. This is a huge realisation for him, right? Now, of course, the Emperor knows that, A, if he loses, that's the end of the Azadian Empire. And, B, he knows the size and the scale of the culture, right, in a way that none of the other players Gurge has played against, has known up to that point. Or maybe one or two, actually. Yeah. Or the one before, I think, might have known. You know, so this idea that Gurge is playing as the culture is, is something that's not realised by him at all. In fact, he's intentionally kept in the dark about it because he's put across as a character that doesn't handle that kind of responsibility particularly well because mm. he's too interested in the system. I mean, there, there, there's some definitely some interesting stuff going on here in terms of how the game interacts with the culture and whether it's real or not. Right? Um, I, was, I was reminded at, at the end of the, the kind of outro credits of Men in Black where you realise that they're playing marbles with different universes and they're kind of mm. recursive and all the rest of it. You know, I mean, it, it's not quite that on the nose but you realise that Gurge, despite what contacts say, have probably been manipulating him this whole time yeah. and he may very well have been born to become the player of games. Um, you do kind of wonder about the status of the game in that, right? You know, what, what this is because and that kind of dramatic crescendo was a firestorm around them and simultaneously the Emperor is playing all the fire cards. Um, you know, it gets a little bit too close for comfort. It then pulls back from that. But I, I loved that as a dramatic device. I think it was, it was really cool. Well, I think this sets the culture as... So at best, then, the culture are deeply hypocritical and manipulative. And then at worst, the culture are actually quite vile in the way that we're going to create a human who thinks he has freedom for the sole purpose of destroying an alien empire by playing them at space chess. And they then, then assure themselves into thinking this is actually the moral way to do things. To quote uh, Aaron Diaz's Dresden Kodak, you call it the path of least resistance when it's actually just evil. Well, I mean, I see where you're coming from, but it would be equivalent to analysing the United States purely through seeing the history of the CIA's operations uh, directorate, which is certainly a valid part of the American history, but... But in the culture, contact are just... So they're the only people who interact with other civilizations. They're considered the pinnacle of what you could do within the culture, right? It's, but it's the interesting, glamorous bit. It is quite interesting what I mean. So the second of the culture to be right because I mean actually they're precisely not the same as the US because the culture isn't forced into a world in the same way, right? I mean it kind of is, but 
the, this is why all of Banks's novels take place on the edges of the culture, because the culture is completely yeah. internally consistent. It would be very, very difficult to write an interesting novel. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> the, the central conceit is that not only is utopia boring, but Gergé is a character who finds the utopia he lives in to be boring. Mm. I think those are partially two different things, right? Because what, what Alex was pointing towards is, is more almost the structure of, of the book as a book, right? Because it's a game with, within a game. Or, and I, I think that's something that, you, that is actually fairly common. And that you have, you know, you, you have a book about a game or about a play, about any of these kind of things, and then you realise, well, actually, even though it has been about the game, there's another, there's a bigger game yeah, yeah. going on. And, and, and sometimes the scale is ridiculous, right? I mean, similar yeah. things happen in Snow by Orhan Pamuk. There's a book called The Magus that I can't remember, but it, it yeah. revolves around a similar idea. Um, the last act refers to Gogé as being the past porn, as in a playing piece that's no longer useful. Yeah, yeah. And you realise the scale at which this is taking place when you look at the numbers in the book, right? You know, they talk about the GSVs, the kind of main ships of the culture. Yeah. You know, and one is described as being small, despite the fact that it's got 250 million people on it. Yeah. You know, and and, uh, the world he lives on has got, you know, tens of thousands or a couple, you know, several hundred thousand. You know, this is a rural backwater. But I think... It's quite hard to understand the culture in those terms because people can just do what they like, right? The reason people live on that world is because they want to live on that world. Yep. They could go and live on a GSV or they could, you know, like Ye does, you know, go elsewhere um, or, you know, just kind of do what they like. And it's, it's difficult because the, the closest thing that the culture has to scarcity, and it's not scarce at all, is the conversion between matter and energy. And it doesn't do it because it's short on matter or energy. The only reason it considers it with any concern is because it's very ungraceful to use yeah. too much of one or the other if you don't need to. So it, it's quite difficult in some ways because it becomes a bit of a trope. You know, you've got so many, so many Banks novels, most of which deal in some small way with contact section. Yeah. Right? Because, and Banks has written an essay about this, this is his utopia, right? That's how he understands it. And he, he, he's interested in exploring the problems that come with that utopia that he's invented in his head, mm. right? By actually, to compare it with Star Trek, doing exactly the opposite of the prime directive. You know, the non-intervention, you know, the non-intervention thing that is, is, is kind of at the core of Star Trek's universe. It's completely the opposite for culture. You want to talk about games as instruction? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, that, yeah, that that follows on. I mean, to say that, like, to talk about there being kind of layers of games, mm. as it were. You know, I mean, and 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 so you know, any given game is just part of a larger one, and and it's kind of recursive and all the rest of it. But I mean, is that is that the way you see it operating in the classroom? You see it as as, as preparing them for life as an Eastern <laughs> European border guard in Paris, please. I guess the more pointed question is. Because you teach using, say, Papers, yeah. Please. Is there anyone in that classroom who, when you sit them down to pay, pay, play Papers, Please, plays it purely as, okay, let's get this right and earn dollars? You should probably explain the game first. Yeah, so, well, I mean, the context is that I, I was teaching a seminar to uh, master students, which was broadly speaking about uh, kind of political... The, the political and social implication of borders and how one might think about borders and 
I mean, this is a fairly common thing to do, so I decided, okay, I'm going to make them play a game. Um, and the game is called Papers, Please. Um, and it's, it's a simulation in which you're... Um, in which you have the job of a border guard in, in a fictional, probably Eastern European country. It's meant to look Eastern European. Um, the Republic of Estotska, I think. And um, basically you're being told you're this border guard. Guard the border. And, um, and, and that's what you do. And the, kind of, the rules of the game become increasingly uh, difficult and increasingly complicated that there's increasingly many things you have to take into account every time you're faced with this person and you have to decide whether they get to cross the border or not. And I think it was, it was a really interesting teaching tool because usually I think when we think about borders, we think about what borders do to the people crossing them. But then putting someone in the position of a border guard and make them do what a border does, I think was a, was a really interesting alternative perspective. As, as a teaching tool, but also um, I think in, in terms of using a game, that was the, it was it's interesting as a game because you can't really win it per se. In that I think it has about thirty different endings, something like that, and and that I think was really interesting in terms of how students reacted to it. Yeah, I think the interesting thing in this way, I mean, particularly about papers, please, which. I would know I managed to play for about two and a half hours before I managed to switch it off. I had to switch it off because I, I found it pretty harrowing. I, I didn't really feel the need to go back. I felt like I got the point. You know, did you yeah. then feel guilty that you could switch it off? Well, I mean, but you do think about these things, right? I mean, one and a half hours of that was me playing it by myself. And then an hour was showing it to a friend of mine mm. who said, yeah, I think we're done. Um, but the interesting thing about Papers, Please is that it doesn't tell you off. I mean, there's been this trend in some video games, particularly the last two Far Cry games and uh, Spec, Ops Spec Ops The Line, the line mm -hmm. um, in which you famously, slight spoilers, have to engage in um, using white phosphorus. Um, and it kind of, being a high-budget shooter, I mean, it, it, it kind of shows you this in great detail. Um, the problem with those games is it makes you do those things and then tells you about how, to be brutal, you've been a shit, right? I mean, mm. you, you know, you've been a bad person. You know, in Far Cry, your character is sick and then goes on to murder millions of people anyway. Um, you know, in Spec Ops, it's got this kind of... It's also quite on the nose about it. But the interesting thing is, I think, things like Papers, Please and, and some of the board games I've played and things, they don't tell you off about it afterwards, right? I mean... Uh, Board games less so because they don't, they, you know, you're not designed to go through it in a particular way. But I, I played a Vietnam one a little while back and I, I learned a lot about it. I don't know a lot about the Vietnam War. It was an interesting game. But one of the interesting things about it is that the American player never wants to use napalm, napalm or, you know, whatever nerve agent, you know, the options yeah. there. You see, this would seem to be an interesting reversal of what we were saying earlier in that we talked about apparently characters in this novel are importing their biases into the game. And we talked about how, well, this is actually fairly realistic because if we look at, say, the Scrabble World Championships, the winners tend not to be native speakers of the language the game is happening in because they don't import their own linguistics biases in. But then when we approach games from an educational standpoint, 
we view this as a, as a success. I mean, sometimes at this university I teach using tabletop war games, and we'll reenact World War II, and I'll explain to the Allied commanders that, look, you can just drive your tanks through this field and ruin the hedges and all the cows will escape and you'll condemn this village to poverty. Now, that has no mechanical effect on the game, and yet the players usually avoid the cows because they want to do the right thing. The American player doesn't want to use napalm. We feel bad for doing certain things in Papers, Please. Far from being an importing of cultural biases into a mechanism, surely this is the point in playing these games. Yeah, I think the argument is that the game can be, or the game inevitably is, structured in a certain way. I was listening to another podcast, fantastic podcast actually, called Three Moves Ahead, which is about strategy games. and plug. Well, yeah, but I mean, no, I mean, they do some really interesting stuff. And at the moment, they've got their winter of wargaming on, which is what they call their kind of winter season. Um, And they were talking about ancient warfare. And they were saying, well, actually, we know almost nothing about ancient warfare. So every game is a design hypothesis. It's a a design hypothesis as to how ancient warfare worked. In particular, did leaders make a difference? So and so on. So those things... The argument is that those things can be baked into the way the game is designed. Now, the difference with those, with the other games I mentioned earlier, like Spec Ops and Far Cry, is that the thing you did in the game, you kind of had to do anyway because that's the way the game played. And then because it's cinematic and it shows you a cutscene which isn't actually part of the game, it's a video or whatever, then shows you something that makes you feel bad, like loads of dead bodies or, or whatever. But the interesting point is whether it's possible to design a game in such a way as to put across that information without making the person feel like they're just being slapped on the wrist for playing. Does that make sense? Well, there is the example of this war of mine, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, is difficult to play because there are essentially no good choices as you control a group of civilians in some... Auckland's civil war situation who essentially live in a house and have to go out at night to get supplies to survive uh, so if you don't eat for three days you die you you know you have the possibility of becoming sick or, or people raiding your house at night and if you don't get sufficient building materials or self-defense weapons once again people will get hurt and die in your house. But going out and raiding, you frequently, if not the majority of the time, you're not engaging with like the brave civilian against bad soldiers. You're engaging with other looters of this destroyed city who are in just as desperate <coughs> straits as you. And you have to think about if you want... Your, you know, the survival of getting better resources by actually fighting another civilian for these resources and the fact that you are actually, you know, either severely hurting or killing somebody who has, you know, even brief characterization on screen that they're in just as bad a situation as you. So is your group more important than anybody else's group? Because, yeah... The game still... I mean, I guess this is a fundamental limitation of the medium, but the game can only present you with the options they've written into the game, though, right? True. And so there are times in this war of mine where there's clearly 
I mean, it's not a simplistic moral choice, but the obvious ones are bad thing to survive, good thing, but you're in trouble. And this is the sort of binary that most games will play on, and even though this war of mine doesn't slap your wrist for it, that's not a dramatically realistic view of morality, necessarily. It is quite interesting. I mean, it's heavily based on the siege of Sarajevo, right? Yeah. Um, even though the city itself that the game takes place in isn't Sarajevo, but um, there was an interest, like, kind of, not not Ferrari, but, I mean, there was an interesting discussion after it came out about how accurate it was because people had, um, I think it was particularly on the review on Rock, Paper, Shotgun, where someone, a survivor, had commented on the website saying, look, guys, they got something right and something's wrong. I mean, the thing that they happened to get wrong was people's propensity to cooperate, actually. Um, you know, which was which this person was saying, well, my experience of the siege of Sarajevo was that people kind of came together in ways that you would never see anywhere else. Um, so, I mean, even that is a kind of design hypothesis. Right? Um, you know, the aesthetic... <laughs> You know, it's always windy and raining in this war of mine. I'm pretty sure occasionally they have nice weather in Sarajevo. I don't know. Like. But I think in, in maybe it's in that regard, Papers, Please is interesting, right? Because when you play the game, it's, it's almost... You know, when you, when you start another game and there's always this section where you're kind of taught how the controls work and these kind of things, right? And you're taught the rules of the game and then once you understood them, they don't change. Whereas I think the whole point of Papers, Please is that you never get out of that section. Mm. You're always just being trained for the game of the border. And I think that that's really interesting because it, I think if you're probably more so if you're familiar with, with games and with going through these particular sequences, the game constantly reminds you, well, this is a game and we're just teaching the, the rules and this kind of thing. So I think there's a way well, it's, of, it's actually a fantastic inversion of one of the classic kind of game design tropes, right? So in a lot of games, you have a small core set of rules that is then yeah. adjusted by exceptions, right? Yeah. So those exceptions then allow you to break the rules in some way. So in a computer game, you might have a gun and it fires bullets and then you reload the gun, right? Yeah. And then you can continue firing. But then later on in the game, you'll get a laser gun, which you don't have to reload because lasers, right, in video games, that's how they work, right? In RPGs, you'll be said, well, to hit an opponent, you'll have to roll this many dice. Mm -hmm. But if you have this ability, you can roll an extra dice. So each of those abilities allows you to break the rules of the game in some small way. Yeah, whereas that's exactly the opposite in Papers, Please. Now, in Papers, Please, of course... It's next to rules or bay. Exactly. So those exceptions to the rules are coming at you thick and fast. So, in fact, the one of the points of the game is that you become increasingly unable to deal with these kind of ridiculous requirements that they're putting on you in terms of rules. And so they're inverting that kind of tutorial trope, right, by actually making it harder work for you. And any changes in those rules aren't to do with giving you more control or more choice or anything else. It's actually to restrict you. Mm. Um, and it becomes extremely difficult because you're having to look up where these people are from in this imaginary map of the step or wherever it's set. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you've got to make enough money to feed your family for the day and all, all these kind of things. I mean, it, it's, it's really quite an interesting um, 
reversal of what that's about. There's a new one coming out soon. I'm not sure whether it's by the same guys, but it's about being a newspaper editor. Yeah. Mm. Um, mm. And the designer of Papers, Please came up with, was it called Junk Mail Simulator? Or something, which was about dealing with like dealing with junk now, but yeah, this guy's but, obviously but, fascinated by bureaucracy. But, uh, but I think that's really interesting because what what the game does by virtue of doing this, even though it it almost becomes impossible to follow all the rules, right? yeah, yeah, you still try, hmm. and I think that's really interesting because it does manage to put you in the position of a border guard, and that, and I think that in in that regard we almost come go full circle in in terms of what what the impact of a game it also doesn't change the game space right so no. you're occupied you know you're in this kind of terribly rendered office of a border guard but you still have to get out the digital manual to look yeah. up the rules for that day and you put it on your desk and all that kind of stuff whereas games that introduce new mechanics will quite often say well you know you can roll this extra dice you know you have the extra dice in your hand or they change something on the screen the enemies are now red not blue you know so and so. there's a fundamental so this is where video games are inherently limited compared to board or card, is that, or even sports. In the, so papers please give you all these rules to follow, but there's stuff that happens when you don't follow those rules. You can let people through, or you can take bribes, or you can do any number of things. You can't do things, however, that the game hasn't defined for you. As if you're playing sport, Maradona can handle the ball into the net. It's not in the rules, but he can do it. If you're playing a football board game or a football computer game, you can't do that unless they've put that into the game. I think where a lot of board games differ is that, say, if you're playing Munchkin, which is a card game, there's no rules in the game for cheating at Munchkin, but you can do it. You can, like, put some cards in your pocket that are really useful, which you're not meant to do, and you can't do that in the computer game. I mean, actually, Munchkin, you're encouraged to. Yeah, but that's interesting, because in Papers, Please, there are all these rules to follow, and then it gives you mechanics to break them. Whereas in a more live game, you could just cheat. What about modding? I don't know if you can mod can papers please specifically. You can mod basically, but I think that that would be because that would be people mod board games. I mean, I I think logically speaking, you'd actually be playing a different game, right? Yeah. I mean, you 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 can't. I mean, actually, if you're playing chess and someone cheats and you continue playing, your list of moves and all the rest of it that would allow someone to follow the game would indicate that you haven't played a game of chess. Well, this is the. I mean, I forget which writer said that's the difference between rules and regulations, right? It's a regulation of chess that once you've touched the piece, you have to move it. You can play without that rule, and it's still chess. You can't, however, I don't know, introduce an air rifle to knock pieces off the board, because then you've stopped playing chess. Right. So there are some rules which are fundamental to the experience. This is the difference between rugby and football. In in philosophy, they're called constitutive and regulative rules. Um, And and so uh, when you refuse to engage with... I mean, actually, you could use an air rifle in chess because you could take a piece and then stand back 50 paces and then shoot it off the board and you still play, you still play chess, right? <laughs> but, you know, it, knocking bits off at random as in a shooting range, I mean, you are no longer playing chess. Yeah. So I'm not so sure... I mean, increasingly, of course, we're seeing computer games that are to do with fundamentally modifying what the game can and cannot yeah. do. In fact, that's what they are all about, um, which is quite an interesting... Thing. Scribble Noughts, you know, you drew your own character. Yeah, Scribble Noughts, Minecraft, ugly. Invariably, a lot, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, invariably a large penis or whatever, and you know, you can 
Uh, this is what people do, right? This might be what you do. Have you seen those Skyrim mods? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, this, this, this actually it's the first us, uh, thing that is modded into any game as a giant penis. Uh, this actually provides us an incredibly improvised but wonderful return to the novel. <laughs> yeah, the one issue I wanted to bring up was... So gender's actually a fundamental theme in it. And something we've discussed is the idea that a lot of the drones and spaceships in the culture novels have large amounts of weaponry and then get that weaponry removed... And the drones in the spaceships compare this to emasculation. And then later in player of games, you can put up body parts as a forfeit in a zad. And this is explicitly done. And what are we... Th- I mean, it's funny at the time when the drone is like, you know, I had all my weapons taken away, I feel powerless. And he's really angrily, bitterly masculine about this. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because in the rest of the book, it's fairly heavily refused, right? I mean, it's implied that if Gurge is tortured, he can just switch off the pain... If he does lose his genitals or whatever, he can just regrow them. Characters in the novels can um, change gender at will over a certain period of time. Um, in, in in another book, um, it's interesting, the characters all have inbuilt glands so they can effectively drug themselves um, and regulate their brain behaviour. Um, and in another book, it's quite interesting because... Oh, sorry, in an essay about the culture, um, Banks writes about how... Um, people could be high all the time and generally that would be a sign of a bad society you know so actually there's no reason for them to be in the culture you know, there's no reason for them to drug themselves all the time um, well I think that certainly with the so we we, we consider things like um, performance enhancing steroids to be drugs we don't however look down upon an athlete for I don't know having an adrenaline boost just pumped out by their body and I think in the culture, by the time that these are, as far as they're concerned, natural glands that they have, they don't really consider them drugs in that sense. He does use the word drug. It's quite strange. Yeah. I, I always thought it was quite odd in, in most of the books. But it, it's described at some point that um, in another novel, Accession, that people effectively have an operating system. You know, they can turn in on themselves for a second and modify their behavior and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. Right. I mean, the interesting thing about Gurge in particular is that he loses the ability to do that as he beces more Azalean. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the emasculation and thing they goes... they start using more and more drugs to become more like him. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, as far as the emasculation thing goes, it is a little bit strange. As it's slightly out of context with the rest of it because it is generally looked down upon to be ego-serving and so-and-so on. And yet all the ships do it, which codes all the ships as almost male. Whereas the humans are able to dispense with that. Hmm. Yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about it in those in those terms. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, 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 there's certainly an aspect of it in the sense that Gugge's never changed sex, um, which in the culture is something people normally do at some point. At mm-hmm. some point, um, it, it's normally implied that they kind of they change at least once and then change back shortly afterwards because they want the experience of um, giving birth. Um, So it is quite interesting that there are some of those dynamics. But I don't... I I kind of thought in the context of this book that that was what would allow... that that kind of masculinised tendency is what would allow him to play the game the way he could. Yeah. Yeah, see, I was wondering whether it was possible to have a female protagonist for this book and it, it wouldn't actually work well, certainly, going back to that conversation that I was talking about 
earlier of Gurgi with with the woman who tells him about women can't play that game. Mm. And I think that's that was really interesting because I thought that in terms of his own world, gender wouldn't play a role because they can change. But then in the context of the world he's moving into. Well, the Azadi, well, I mean, the book yeah. admits itself that it's limited by what pronouns it can use within its text. But the, while the Azadians view him as a weird alien, they certainly view him as male. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, some of Banks's other novels have perhaps more fleshed out female characters. Mm. Um, I mean, it, it's certainly worth noting that, yay, you know, while. Um, while Gurge's off doing his thing is designing worlds, right? And being an architect and all yeah. the rest of it. And I, I kind of saw that as setting up a kind of counterpoint. I mean... She's building, he's destroying. Yeah, and I, I, I think that... But I, I wouldn't necessarily see it in a binary way. That I mean, I, I would say that if you were to give him as much credit, and I'm not sure we can, but if you were to give him as much credit... It's just the chance of the narrative, right? This is mm. Flerier Imsahor's narrative that he's chosen to tell about Gurge, right? I mean, there could just as easily have been a different book about something completely different. And, and, and the culture novels in general take that attitude towards their characters. Um, mm. Accession has very few human characters in it at all. Um, it mostly just deals with AI. Um, and... Also, in several novels, it's heavily implied that most of the characters, especially towards the end, it's fairly heavily implied that most of the characters didn't really have much control over what they were doing because the AI has already kind of preordained their position or what they can do. The drones bring themselves down to that human problem in that a lot of the characters, the, the AI characters in the book have to pretend to be limited in front of the Azadians who are basically human. In order to make them stop them being uncomfortable, right? They have to pretend to be fundamentally not in control of their lives. Well, of course, and, and, and Flare himself has to wear the disguise, which, of course, you'd later find out he was already in a disguise yeah. um, in order to bring himself across as a library drone or, you know, whatever it was he was dressed up to be. Yeah. Um, you know, it leads to some absolutely brilliant kind of comic things where you know the drone is bumping into things and you know kind of taking out his frustration and humming loudly deliberately to yeah, but, I, but I think the the context is the drones and the ships and everything else you know just as much as the humans live live in and come from a culture which values them as individuals in some sense at least they're taught to believe that so of course the drone is going to be annoyed if it's told not to be a what it sees as a person um, because we're dealing with a society that defines human as a form of behaviour and culturally rather than as a species Um, you know they they really don't see any any distinction and and in the novel Gurge can't tell he finds it weird he doesn't understand that you can possess a person Um, and and particularly as he begins to learn the Azadian language I think there's a really interesting passage kind of in the beginning when I think they had some sort of social function and there is a commotion and somebody puts a class, I think, on, on top. Of the drone. Yes. Of the drone, yeah. And I thought that was really interesting because I was almost, you know, using a, a being as a piece of furniture and there's a notable kind of 
discontent going on. And I think that was an interesting tension because clearly it, the way it's written, it's set up as there not being a difference, but then you have this kind of drawing. Well, I mean, none drawing. of them like that drone. They're deliberately annoying him or it, right? There's also the yeah. later on where Gergay is discussing with the Azadian how crime and punishment works. Yeah. And it's like, well, what if someone kills someone or they get drone slapped, which means a drone follows them around to stop them doing it again and then they just don't get invited to parties. And if, even if you gate crash, no one would talk to you. And, and th- there's the, they don't quite understand how the other culture works because of a fundamental concept. But then we see them deliberately breaking this by clearly the culture of people do know that drones could be seen as objects because yeah. they jokingly use them as tables. Yeah, we'll finish up. Uh, yeah, unless anyone has anything else. Yeah, anything else? Yeah. Do we want to talk about what it means to win? Yeah, yeah, we can. Well, I think to me that's one of the fundamental questions. It comes out in kind of the introduction, um, the narrator's introduction, I think, is that part. Yeah. Um, where he's kind of asking several questions about the game. One of them is what constitutes winning anyway. And I think that's that's really interesting in terms of a lot of games that we've talked about, right? Whether I, I think and that links to the question of what is the purpose of a game, how does a game work, what's, what's the aim and what is the player's aim in, in this game. So, I mean, in terms of, of the book we are talking about, I think the purpose of it is partially reproduction of a particular social system yeah, yeah. And, and continuation. And within that you have winning. Mm-hmm. But I think those are two different things almost. Well, there's certainly players in the Azadian Empire that play for position. Yeah. Well, of course, but being an imperialist power, the Azadian Empire is capitalistic and imperialistic. They view existence as a we win, other people or things don't. Yeah, I mean, it does lead to some interesting questions, though, because when there's, there's games that I play to win, hmm. right? Rocket League, right? It's car football, so you play it to win, right? Yeah. Flying car football, so it's awesome. But. Um, but the, the the point is there's 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 other games like Papers Please which I don't play to win now I think now I, uninst- I uninstalled Papers Please I took it off my computer I mean a while back and I don't think I particularly feel the need to put it back on despite the fact that I haven't beaten it yeah or I haven't experienced the full range of possibilities that it can offer because I had my experience with it yeah thought oh my god oh hell what's going on and thought you know and and that was enough for me I, I i mean i think i kind of basically understood the point i i understand there's probably some plot twists and so and so on but the plot wasn't what i was playing it for you know mm-hmm. so you have this kind of slightly asinine discussion actually in, in in games media about you know oh this isn't a game because there's now games which are effectively digital installations or digital art installations oh, um i mean quite often kind of somewhat chauvinistically called walking simulators I mean, even though they don't particularly simulate walking well. Um, but, I mean, they're not there to be one. You know, they might be there to tell a narrative. Or... This is an advantage. So Gerge goes to us out to play the game primarily because he's curious about it. This is an advantage that the Azadians can't have because they can't play the game to be interested in it. it. It forms their culture. So they can't set up an interesting thing to see how it would play out. They, they have to take it seriously. Hmm. And so... Even if an Azadian could ask, what does it mean to win? I don't think they have a chance to explore that within the confines of the system. Not to play. Yeah. <laughs> or to play for some other purpose, right? Yeah. yeah. What's the um, aim of the tabletop? 
strategy games. Well, this is one of the things which this I was going to buy. Like, you don't have to play a game to win because there are so many games. I mean, maybe I just have a stupid play style, but I play quite a lot of games which are extremely hours intensive for the sake of it subsumes me from work more than I'm playing towards a final objective of winning because sometimes I get to the end game and then just start again because the fact of winning gives me no satisfaction. It's the playing. Well, this is actually a fundamental problem that a lot of tabletop tournaments have never solved in that you you assemble however many hundred players from all four corners of the country and some of them are in it to win and they can be and there's nothing wrong with that. But not everyone there is. And so it leads to games where nobody's having fun because the person who turned up with a character for Lamy who wants to explore a story or an idea of how the game works gets hammered by someone who wants a tactical challenge who doesn't feel like they've won anything. And one game I play far too much time playing, which is Blood Bowl, which I love, gave up on this problem a few years ago. And Blood Bowl, rather than trying to make sure the game is balanced, has two sets of tiers named after rugby, presumably where there's the, these are the teams you play for serious tactical intrigue who are actually capable of winning in a system sense, and here are the other ones who are just slightly funny. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's other things you can get out of it. I mean, playing historical war games. Yeah. You know, you you quite often set up a game to mirror a particular scenario. So Mm -hmm. the Battle of the Bulge is a particular popular one, uh, particularly popular one, uh, Course and Pocket. You know, all of these famous kind of historical situations. And I mean, invariably, the person who's going to win whose side won the actual conflict. But I mean, the idea is to understand the dynamics of it. Mm. Um, And and so I'm quite happy, as, as far as those are concerned, I'm quite happy with the kind of, what you might call the kind of touching history aspect of it. Right, you know, I can play, and to be honest, if I've got a free evening, you know, I I don't mind it. You know, I'll do that, you know, or I'll read or I'll play a computer game or whatever. You know, I I don't really mind spending time reading rules because I enjoy doing that. Um, even though I'm gonna get hammered. I mean, the question then becomes, you know, did he get hammered as bad as Napoleon did, or do you, you know, or 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 Kutuzov? Um, but you know, whatever. Um, I, I I think that that experience in that kind of simulation sense is is somewhat different. The other thing, of course, is games that are just designed to allow you to enjoy your friends, right? Pictionary is not about winning, hmm. right? Cards Against Humanity, despite all the problems I have with it, is not about winning. It's there to, about, you know, it's about enjoying your friends and giving them a framework in which, you know, with sufficient alcohol or whatever, you know, you can laugh along and have a good time. So, I mean, that that, that would be another take on it. But I, I don't think winning is, is is the only objective. I mean, it's kind of... Are there... So where's the example of the game in which there is no victory condition? Because picturing cards against humanity both keep score. I think there's games in which would allow you to relate to the victory condition in a different way. So Crusader Kings or European Universalis, which are huge simulations of... Western society at any you know particular points of history, arguably there's a high score in the prestige system, but it doesn't really work. So most people ignore it. You know, so they they set their own objectives. Then, oh, I want to colonize this, or I want to have a, play a certain kind of character. Yeah, and, and in that case, you're setting your own 
standards for what you want to get out of it. I suppose the the, the, the fundamental example of the games that don't have victory conditions. So when Gary Gygax launched Dungeons and Dragons, one of the deeply confusing things was people read through the rule book and said, "Well, okay, how do you win?" Hmm. Like, well, you don't. The game doesn't have win conditions. It has a. It's a story. Yeah, yeah. Well, it still has fail states. Yeah. But no victory state, I think, is the important thing. Yeah, yeah. That'd be interesting to talk about another time. Um, we better be finishing up there. We've, mm-hmm. we've actually dragged on. Um, so, uh, well, thanks very much for listening. and uh, We'll see you next month. Yeah. Well, okay. we won't see you, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good night. Night. Night.